Are you ready? Come on, let's go, ready? Come on, you were sleeping, right? You were sleeping, and then you woke up early and you came to church, we gotta get you going. I hate losing an hour of sleep. Can I get an amen? I mean, whose stupid idea was this? I don't know, but I'm so glad that you're here, and I do love spring. Spring is great, right? Spring is in the air, things are moving forward, and our medical and scientific community has helped us so much, and we're seeing maybe hope rising in this pandemic. This is a good new day. Let's lean in, because we're three weeks away from Easter. That's cool, right? Three weeks from Easter, and here's what we're gonna do as a church family. We're gonna spend time looking at the last words of Christ in his final hours. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 18. John chapter 18, electronic copy, paper copy, find a copy, get a copy, open up your Bibles. John chapter 18, verses one through 14. And here's what's neat. These are some of God's last words to us as he walked on planet Earth back in the book of John. And as a church family, we've worked our way through the book of John slowly over the last couple years. So if you go back in time, we did a sermon series called Follow Me and a sermon series called Believe Me and a sermon series called Kingdom Life. And if you wanna go back into our sermon archives and watch those sermons, you can kinda get up to speed in the book of John. We find ourselves in John chapter 18 and it's the scene where Jesus is arrested. He's arrested. Now, if I'm writing the story of Jesus, I am not writing John 18 and 19. Like, I don't like this way the story goes. Here's why. I wouldn't include this because when you or someone you love is treated unjustly, what do you do? When you or someone you love is bullied, maligned, mistreated, hurt, falsely arrested, falsely accused, imprisoned, do you just lay down and take it? Or do you, let's go, right? You defend yourself, you fight back. So I wouldn't write John 18 or 19 because Jesus doesn't. And I'm like, what's the deal? Not only does Jesus not resist arrest, he walks out and goes, here you go, lock me up. He doesn't just not fight back. He's like, here, take me. And I'm going, wait, Jesus, you're not weak. You're not crazy. Why would you do this? Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, says the weapons we, followers of Christ, use, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. Yes, there is a way to resist. Yes, there's a way to deal with injustice. There's something about how we do it as followers of Christ that's not the same. And Jesus, in these moments, fights, but he does it in a way that's so very different. It's why as we work through this set of chapters in the Bible, we're calling this fighting words because there's a way Jesus goes on the offense. There's a way he brings about change. There's a way he does good in this world in the face of injustice, but he just doesn't do it the way we would. And as we look at how he does it in his final hours, I think what you find is you just have a moment of worship where you look at how Jesus handles circumstances and what he does and how he's motivated. It makes you go, this is the God I worship. 
but it also causes you and me to look at our own lives and look at how we respond to things that are happening in our world and maybe analyze how we fight all the craziness that's taking place in our lives. Jesus shows us what that looks like. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, this world is messed up and broken. I'm messed up and broken. And you came to a messed up, broken world and how you redeemed, how you rescued, how you saved, how you acted is so otherworldly. And you invite us into this kingdom that is of not of this world. So help us to see Jesus today those online, those here on campus. Help our eyes to be open and our ears to be open to see and to hear what is true and right. Help us to worship you and trust you and obey you and follow you. The example you set for us is an example of hope. And you give us the ability to fight but not to fight like everyone else does. You're calling us to be a holy people, a different kind of people, ones that represent you on planet Earth. So may your kingdom come through us as we fight, as we fight like Jesus. I pray this through Christ's strong name, amen. John is the author of this gospel. John is Jesus' closest earthly friend, but his gospel is different. Three other gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, were written before the gospel of John, and those three gospels are different. Jesus is John's closest earthly friend, so when John writes about Jesus, he shows us a side of Jesus the other gospel writers don't. These are different, there are differences between John's gospel and the others, but they're not contradictions, they're enhancements that we get to see more up close and personal. Jesus' humanity and his divinity in beautiful ways. John starts the end of Jesus' life in John chapter 12, and you get to John 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, all an aspect of Jesus' final hours on earth, but John slows down to a crawl because he shows this intimate side of Jesus, this hum human side that's interacting with the divine side, and he's giving us this inside scoop of who Jesus is and what he's like. So the scene starts in John chapter 18 with the Passover meal. You remember the Last Supper. Jesus meets with his disciples in an upper room. They're following this Jewish festival. They meet together and that Last Supper starts out, remember Jesus washing the disciples' feet and telling the disciples that he must die. He looks into Judas's eyes and predicts that Judas is going to betray him. And he says to Judas, what you're about to do, do it quickly. And Judas scurries off to the plan that he's going to use to get rid of Jesus. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, you're going to betray me. You're going to deny me three times. He predicts it and tells him. He tells his disciples, you should love one another. There's great love in loving one another and that the world will know you're my followers if you love 
one another. Jesus tells them all these truths. He says, I'm going to die. He says, don't be troubled that I'm going to die because I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit who's going to live inside you to comfort and guide you to take care of you. And he gets to John chapter 17 and he prays this intimate prayer for his disciples. Jesus is spending these final hours with his disciples. It's intimate. It's rich. They're beautiful words. It's close. He prays for them. And then things in John 18 go quickly downhill. John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. So they leave the upper room. They're celebrating in Jerusalem. They go outside of the city of Jerusalem, and they cross the Kidron Valley. Now, all again, all of this is taking place during the Passover. It's this festival where thousands of people come and mob the city to celebrate that they were rescued. And a part of their celebration is every family has to sacrifice a lamb. So historians think that 200,000 lambs are sacrificed in that holiday. Imagine the amount of blood in the temple. If you're sacrificing all of these animals, there's blood running, but the city's prepared for this. They actually create a drainage system out of the city so that the blood can flow out and go away into the garbage heap. Jesus celebrates the Last Supper. He leaves the city of Jerusalem and he crosses over the Kidron Valley. He actually has to step over the blood running out of the city, the blood that would represent the religion of humanity trying to appease a holy God. He steps over it and goes to a garden. The garden is known in other places as the Garden of Gethsemane. It's on the side of the Mount of Olives. It's likely a walled-in garden. It might be a vineyard, likely owned by someone who is wealthy, right outside the city gates, a little walled vineyard, a garden, that Jesus is allowed to use to find a place of quiet and retreat. So Jesus frequently goes to this garden, to this walled space in a chaotic world. As he goes up to Jerusalem, he heads into this garden when he needs to get away. He takes his disciples into this garden when he gets, to go, gets away. He goes into this, everybody knows this is where he goes, but it's this quiet Rest, retreat, place. Don't miss the symbolism here, what John's trying to convey to us. On the night he was betrayed, the Lamb of God, who would die to take away the sins of the world, walks out of the city, steps over the ritual sacrifice of blood, into the garden, echoing to the Garden of Eden, where all sin and death started. Now the King of Kings and Lord of Lords goes into that garden to fight, to upend death and sin, to reverse the curse. Verse two, now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. This is all planned, right? For whatever reason, Judas is disenfranchised from Jesus. He's one of his disciples. He doesn't dig Jesus anymore. And the religious leaders have been trying for years to try to get rid of Jesus 
So the two come together, the religious leaders and Judas, they devise a plan, Judas is gonna sell Jesus out, but Judas, you gotta find a quiet, solitary place, a moment in time outside, away from the crowds, where we can arrest him. Judas seizes the moment, he goes and gets the leaders and says, we should get a detachment of soldiers. They've gotta go outside the city into the dark, and if it was you and me and someone came to arrest us, you'd fight back, wouldn't you? I would. Hey, Judas says to them, we gotta go outside the city. He's up on the side of the Mount of Olives. Let's go find him. Well, we better get clubs and swords and torches because who knows how this is going to go down. And Jesus hears them coming. You can't miss a large contingent of soldiers making their way out of town into this garden, verse four. Jesus, knowing all that's going to happen, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. Jesus hears them coming, he knows he's going to be arrested, so he goes out of the garden to them. He doesn't wait for them to come in and get him. He doesn't go run and hide. He says, who is it that you want, Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, I am he, or it is I, I am am Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you would think Jesus would try to hide. You'd think he might play coy in this moment. Like, what do you need him for? What do you want with him? Why are you asking for Jesus of Nazareth? No, he just says, no, I'm your guy. Verse six, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. He says, I am he, and all these leaders and soldiers They've come out to get this carpenter turned religious leader who's never used force a day in his life. They've got weapons, they've got torches, and he says, I am he, and they fall to the ground. Something more is going on here than what we can see at the surface, right? The phrase, I am he, those are fighting words. Those are fighting words. You see, you're looking for this carpenter turned religious leader. He's never harmed anyone. And in this moment, he says, I am he. And that's a power statement because buried in that phrase is the words, I am. I am. Echoing the God of the universe in Exodus chapter 3, when he reveals himself to Moses, he says, I am who I am. And Jesus repeats this phrase in John chapter six. He says, I am the bread of life. In John eight, he says, I am the light of the world. In John 10, he says, I am the gate for the sheep. In John 10, he continues to say, I am the good shepherd. John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. When Jesus says, I am he, he's wrapping all of this truth together and says, I am something you don't realize. These same words he speaks in John chapter, five, John chapter eight, verse 55. Religious leaders are coming to him and questioning him and saying, who are you, Jesus? John eight fifty five. he says, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. He's revealing who he is. He's connecting himself with the king of kings, the God of the universe. 
Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, he says to the religious leaders in John 8, I am. And at this point, back then in John 8, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away to the temple grounds. He leaves, he says, I am. And they go, we're gonna kill you, and he slides away. But not this time in John chapter 18. He doesn't slide away. He says, who are you looking for? And they go, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. These guys don't know what they're up against. The eternal second person of the Godhead. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. The great I am is standing in their presence. And they feel it in their bones and they just unknowingly, unwillingly fall down because they're in the presence of God Almighty and they don't know what's going to happen next. Involuntarily, they sense they're in the presence of the creator of the universe and the text says they back up and they fall down because at this moment, they have no idea what's going to happen. And if I'm in the driver's seat, I'm dropping Hiroshima on them. I'm annihilating them. If I'm God of the universe, I'm knocking them down, but I'm not God. And watch what Jesus does. He de-escalates the situation incredibly. They know involuntarily he is God in this moment. And he asks them a question, verse seven. Who is it that you want? He's just shown him who, they, who he is. And he says, who is it that you want? He asks them again. And I bet quivering, they go, Jesus of Nazareth? He answered, I told you, I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words that have been spoken would be fulfilled. I've lost not one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting his ear off. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers and its commanders and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and they brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Peter steps up to defend Jesus with a sword. Jesus stops him. He says, don't do that. Matthew tells us of this same scene. Jesus says, I could call all the angels of heaven out to stop all of this, but I'm not doing it because Peter and everyone else, I don't fight like everyone does. I don't drop bombs. I don't use swords and clubs. That's not how I roll. He says, I have to drink this cup that God has given me to drink. He's saying, I know my job description. I came to planet Earth to seek and to save what was lost. I lay my life down, Jesus says, only to take it up again. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I will take it up again. I will pay for the sins of the world on my shoulders. I will die a cruel, unjust death so that the world can go free. I will absorb the wrath of God and I will fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet Jesus did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears, it's silent, 
so Jesus did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, Jesus was taken away. Put your sword down, he says. That's not how I fight. And the great I am is bound by humans and taken away. And you want to scream, Jesus, stop it. This is unjust. This is unfair. This isn't right. You have the power. Do something. Don't let this happen. Instead, with great humility and love, Jesus leaves the Last Supper. He steps over the ritual sacrifice, goes into the garden, comes out fighting with his arms and says, lock me up. I will die. This is his fighting words. I am. And you look at the scene and you go, how, how could he let this happen? Why does it go this way? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son over to torture so that by believing in him, we would have life. There's only one small reference to Jesus using his power in this entire scene. Did you catch it? Just one tiny reference. Go back to John chapter 7, or John chapter 18, verse 7. He says, again, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words that had been spoken would be fulfilled. I have lost none of those you gave me. He walks out of the garden and says, if you want me, lock me up, but don't touch them. The only use of power that Jesus demonstrates, here I am, don't touch my disciples. Leave them alone. Fulfilling the words of John 6, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. I will lose none of all those you have given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. So instead of protecting himself in this moment, he uses his power to protect others. You wanna see fighting? You wanna know what it looks like to fight? Jesus shows us in this moment, he could have called on angels. He could have stopped this. Instead, he gives himself willingly to protect and shield his disciples, who, by the way, don't deserve to be protected. A handful of them betray him, disown him, and yet the king of kings goes, take me, leave them alone. And in doing so, he demonstrates to us, demonstrates to us how to live. So I wonder for you and me today, do you use your power for yourself? Or do you use it for others? You go, I don't have any power. Oh, yes, every man, woman, and child created in the image of God is entrusted with power. Power of words, power of influence, power of money, 
power to speak up or shut up, power to live, power to love. How do you use the power that's been entrusted to you? So many of us, we, we just go, this is mine. This is my reputation, this is my money, this is my education, this is my influence, this is my job, these are my kids, this is my family, everything is mine. But the Son of God goes, everything is mine and I will leverage everything I have for you, for people who don't deserve it. Can you imagine if Jesus treated us like we treat so many people in our lives? If he would go, well, I don't know him and I don't care about her and that's not really my problem. What's the big deal? If we would treat others like we're treated. No, Jesus goes, you don't deserve me to die for you. You're someone who will betray me. You'll walk away from me at the easiest opportunity, yet I will shield you from what you deserve. Imagine what our world would be like if we treated other people like Jesus treats us. The helpless, the unborn, the homeless, the broken, the people that are ignored and marginalized, the alien, the foreigner, every type of person. If we would see them like Jesus sees us and we would leverage whatever power, whatever influence, whatever opportunity, instead of protecting our own selves, if we leveraged all of that to protect others who were hurting and struggling and in harm's way, that's what it looks like to fight in God's kingdom, to look after other people, protect other people. Yes, as Christ followers, there's a way to fight, but it's not the way most of us naturally do it. It's the type of fight that says, your best interest is more important than mine. And oh, by the way, hear this, the same power that lived inside Jesus lives inside of you. How did Jesus walk out of that garden and say, take me, leave them alone? How did he do it? He did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And doesn't the Spirit of God live inside you? So the same Spirit that allowed Jesus to say, take me, leave them alone, empowers you and me to say, take me, leave them alone. Let me protect and shelter and care for those who are hurting, those who are struggling, those who are left behind, those others neglect. When people came to arrest Jesus, he gave himself up to protect his disciples and he's still doing the same thing today for you. In the face of evil and justice, Jesus is protecting us from ultimate harm. The Bible says that Satan walked into Judas's heart, evil walked into Judas's heart, religious leaders thinking they were defending the truth unjustly arrest Jesus in the face of evil and injustice, the great I am shielded his disciples. He's doing the same thing today. So many people are being mistreated, maybe you. So many people are experiencing abuse, God sees it. So many people are being slandered and maligned. God sees it, he knows it. So many people are going through depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts. God sees it. You know kids out there who are watching or here in the room, you know when you're bullied in school, God sees it. 
teenagers that are overlooked. You don't make the team. You don't make the orchestra. You don't get playing time. God sees you. He knows it. That job promotion that you deserved and didn't get, the career that you've been longing for, hoping for, preparing for, praying for, that just doesn't ever happen, the raise that you desperately need that you just doesn't come, God sees you. Your spouse is mistreating you and unfaithful and yet you've stayed faithful. God sees you. When you're falsely accused, when your reputation is dragged through the mud, God sees you. When all injustice and everyone is succeeding, everyone else is winning, everyone else is getting ahead, and you're left behind in the dust, God sees you. Just when it was looking the worst for Jesus, when it looked like he had lost in the face of evil, did he lose? Or does he win? Did he win some ultimate battle, some greater victory when everything looks lost and evil seems to be winning in your life? The great I am is by your side, shielding and protecting you from ultimate harm. It's why in the book of Genesis, Joseph is persecuted. Joseph is mistreated. Joseph is sold into slavery. And he says, what people intended for my harm, God intended for good. It's why the prophet Isaiah says, no weapon formed against you will stand. If you're in Christ, no weapon, no scheme, no thing that looks like evil and injustice in everyone else's eyes, including yours. No weapon formed God's, against God's children will ultimately prevail. It's why Paul says in Romans chapter eight, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's why Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave Jesus up for us all. How will God not also along with Jesus give you all things? If God would not spare his son this cruel and unjust moment, and God loved his son and said, this is the path you must walk. If God didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also grant you and me all things. Jesus is standing by your side. No ultimate harm will come your way. It doesn't mean that's going to happen in your timeline. It may not look the way you want it to look, but if heaven is real and forgiveness is true and eternity goes on and 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 on forever, and this life is but a vapor that goes, if we're all going to die, if injustice and difficulty, we must face this side of heaven, but our king has conquered all things and grants us eternal pleasures at God's right hand forevermore, we can endure whatever comes. That doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean if you're facing abuse right now by someone, you should just accept it. Get yourself safe Find safety, call the police, do something right, get a lawyer. I'm not saying any of that, but I am saying in an ultimate way, if Jesus is our defender and shield, I can trust him. 
I can follow him. I can believe in him. And there's hope with whatever evil comes, whatever hardship you face, whatever difficulty, you can trust the great I am is shielding you from ultimate harm. And that is what gives us as followers of Christ peace. Would you pray with me? This is hard, God. We want to scream when we see injustice. We want to fight when people are bullied. We want to defend ourselves and our reputation. First and foremost, would we trust you to be our defender and our shield? Thank you for defending us on the cross, for dying for our sins, paying the price we couldn't pay. Thank you for loving us so much that you would give your life so that we would be forgiven and live. God, this side of heaven, we face all kinds of injustices, harm and difficulty. Would you be our protector and our defender? That nothing would come our way that would harm us ultimately. We trust you. When the hardship comes, when the injustice comes, help us to fight like you fight, to fight with ways that don't make sense to other people, to be so connected to your spirit that we can even fight with peace. We can even defend ourselves with self-control. We can defend ourselves with, with faithfulness and gentleness and love. Ultimately, we fall on your grace and fall on your protection and fall on your truth. God, every one of your sons and daughters that's listening to this, with whatever power we've been entrusted to, may we be defenders of the weak, defenders of the hopeless and helpless. May we be the individuals that would speak up and speak out for others that we might look like you and bring your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. You, Spirit of God, can empower us to do it. We trust you. We will follow you. We love you. Amen.